Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concepts, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. Thank you for joining us for episode 13. Today we're speaking with Chelsea Culpepper, who is an artist, fabricator, and project manager at Workshop Art Fabrication Foundry in Kingston, New York. Workshop was started by Andrew Farmer and Vincent DiDonato in 2015 after they'd worked together for over 17 years at Pollock's Talix Foundry and provides an intimate and boutique experience, offering artists services that include metal casting and fabrication, mold and pattern making, project development and management, patina and paint applications, and conservation and restoration. Chelsea began working for Workshop shortly after they opened as a recent BFA graduate from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and trained in the Wax Room, later becoming a trusted project manager and artist liaison. Due to the continuing COVID-19 pandemic, I'm chatting with Chelsea online to do our part to mitigate risk. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Talking with me today. And I think it would be really nice if you could talk a little bit about uh, workshop art fabrication and what they do and how long they've been around and exactly what you do for them. Sure. So um, workshop has been around for coming up on six years. So they're fairly young, but... um, Andrew and Vinny started the shop um, both after having extensive careers like at Polich. Um, Andrew also had another foundry before this one as well. And um, so they both have like cumulatively a lot of years in the foundry business. Um, uh, and so then they came up to Kingston to start workshop. Uh, and I started maybe six months or so after they were open. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, really early on, there were only, I think, six people here when I started. Um, And I came in not really knowing anything about the foundry. Um, Did you have any metal experience when you started? No, I mean, in school, I, uh, one of my studies was sculpture, but I did mostly fiber work. And so Mm -hmm. I took 
one class where, you know, 20 kids stood in line to weld for 10 minutes. Uh, and that was about the extent of my knowledge of even what happened in the foundry. So, um, I just saw the post on NIFA and at the time was working like six different part-time jobs, you know, working at a cafe and making money with, um, yeah, varying degrees of, uh, job exploration. Uh, so yeah, I was really excited and they basically offered a job entry level. We'll teach you, we'll find what space you'll fit into and we'll go from there. And so when I started, um, I started in the wax department because uh-huh. they didn't really have one. There were a couple guys working here who had worked at Talix, um, and they were kind of doing a little bit of everything. And Andrew and Vinny both were on the floor full time, uh-huh. also doing a little bit of everything. So that was really good because I was able to to work closely with them at the beginning and really learn from them, which I think was really beneficial. You know, it wasn't like I was learning from someone who learned from someone who learned from someone, you know, I was like going straight to the source. So, um, I started there and I've pretty much stayed in the wax room the entire time. Could you talk a little bit about, um, like what the process of a piece going through the, the foundry and like how the wax room kind of fits into that? Sure. Yeah. So the wax room is usually the second step in the process. Um, A lot of the times we do have people bringing their own waxes in. Um, That's just for their benefit to cut down on costs. But basically a work comes in either like a 3D scan or maybe uh, a clay sculpture that the artist will bring in. Uh, And then it goes into the mold department. So a silicone mold is made around the object um, coated in silicone and then layered with plaster so that it has like a structure around it. Um, then they open that mold and give it to the wax department. The wax department then takes that piece and, um, kind of like you would gesso a canvas, they layer wax into the surface of the mold itself. Um, many, many coats up to uh, a quarter inch of thickness. Um, and then, they close the piece up, slush it again with wax so that there's an even coating on the inside. And then you demold it. And uh, underneath that shell is a wax version of whatever the sculpture was that was brought in. So during that process, um, there's a parting line, kind of like you see on any glass object or, or, or something that's made in a form. Uh, and that parting line then has to be taken away and the original um, texture put back in. So that's the first part in the wax department is getting rid of that, um, line and bringing the object back to being true to the original. So that's rework. Um, and then once the object looks like the original, um, a lot of the times at that point, the artist will come back in just to look at it and kind of, you know, decide if they think that it's ready to move on to the casting process. Um, Once it's approved, then the next part of the um, process is gating. And that is basically applying a plumbing structure to the piece for the metal to get to. And uh, gating is a really important moment because it, the structure that you build around the object has to be 
made in a way that allows the metal to flow really nicely through a piece. So since it's hollow and a lot of pieces have a lot of undercuts and um, different variations through texture or um, thickness, you have to make sure that the way you design the system allows for the easiest route for the metal to go through. The metal will flow through each piece differently depending on the textures and depending on the variety of thicknesses, which is just inherent in each work. Um, And so the gators have to design a system that allows for the easiest route for the metal to go through. And that ensures that the casting comes out nicely. So, I mean, with obviously with every step in the process, there are things that if you do them well, the piece will turn out. Um, and if you do not, then the piece will fail. And it's, <laughs> but it's just at, at the point in gating, it seems like um, you have the biggest task of making sure that the piece casts well. So then once you have the structure on there, which ends up looking like a, a maze of wax on top of a wax object. So it's a little bit hard to visualize. And honestly, until I did the entire process, I still feel like I didn't really understand it. So um, once the gating structure is on work, depending on the size of the piece, um, we sometimes put larger objects into a rebar box structure. So that entails taking the wax over to... Um, our caging area and constructing and welding a cage around the whole piece, basically to protect it. So it's, it's, it's a shell um, that keeps it from being bumped or um, harmed during the rest of the process. So usually uh, for, yeah, for a large scale piece, that's helpful for the next process, which is the dipping process. So at that point, the shell room will take the work and dip it in subsequent layers of silica and something that looks like and resembles uh, like a ceramic slip that you would do Mm -hmm. on ceramic pieces. So it's a wet and dry process um, layered over and over for up to 16 coats. So they dip it in a, um, in the wet they dip it uh into it's like a slurry kind of a slurry yep and then and then into the sand slurry sand slurry sand and that process um allows the whole piece to then come out with um probably up to a quarter inch thickness of shell around the whole piece wow um and that part's really beautiful because um at that point the entire thing is white And the structures start to blend together and it becomes, you know, this kind of mammoth abstract object. Um, uh, And then once it's completed in there, they'll take the work and put it into a giant oven, essentially, uh, which will melt out all of the wax that's inside there. So flip the piece upside down and let the wax pour out of the structure that you put around it. Does it harden? Does it harden the shell too when you bake it again, or it yeah. just takes the wax out? Yeah, exactly. So the the heat helps set the shell as well as melt out the wax. And once that's completed, they'll close up any of the holes that they opened up in order to let the wax escape. So they'll seal those up with cement, and then they'll put the cage back in the oven, and that prepares it for casting. So preheating the shell allows it to not or ensures that it's not going to be shocked when it's poured full of 
you know, 2000 degree metal. So they preheat the shell in the same, in the same oven and then remove the shell and bury it in a pit of sand. Um, and it's very special, uh, very heavy sand that, um, will keep the pressure, uh, keep the shell under pressure. So when they're filling it with metal, it doesn't have a tendency to, to blow up or to, to expand in any way. Um, so that part of the process is probably like the scariest, but also everyone's favorite because right. You get to watch these guys in spacesuits suit up and pour molten metal into, uh, into an object. Uh, so once that happens and you're able to pull it back out of the pit, um, that's when everyone crosses their fingers and, um, the divest area breaks the shell off and you get to see how the casting turned out. Um, and that's usually the moment when you know if something went wrong, what it was and kind of what part of the process failed. So once it's, once the shell is removed and all you have is the bronze structure, then you basically do the whole process in reverse. So Mm -hmm. then you take off all of the gates, which are now bronze as well. So you cut it out of the structure that you put it back in before. And, um, and then you chase away all of the evidence of that structure and, um, the casting process, um, be that like gates or imperfections that happen during the process, um, bringing the piece back to, uh, its true form. Uh, and sometimes that requires welding the pieces back together. Um, because especially for larger works, they're not, most of the time pieces aren't cast complete. Uh, which is, which is interesting to me because I never really put that together. You know, you think of a statue like, oh, that's a, a full bronze work, but especially like a life-size figures, at least for our foundry for size capacity is usually cut down into at least three pieces, if not more. So the next part is, is, you know, fabbing that back together, assembling that back, welding it all up. Um, And then the uh, finishing department will take you know, a variety of um, grinders and pencil tools and uh, chase away any memory of what we did during the whole process. Uh, Well, it's funny you say that you did the textile uh, stuff in school because listening to you talk about how the parts are like broken up and then reassembled, I weirdly always think metalwork is kind of like sewing in that Definitely, takes so much like prep and pattern making and then... yeah there's like a structural moment where you're like, ta-da. But until then it's all kind of plans and flat, um, especially metal construction, maybe not so much in foundry work, but yeah. Right. But it is though. Like I think, especially when you see a work um, at the moment where it's still being put back together, it, it looks quilted because, you know, there are all these areas where you've had to weld back in patches um, and where, you know, the, the evidence of that, of that process of putting something back together is really evident. So, yeah, I always, I always think that everything is, is kind of interchangeable as far as like thinking about the variety of craft, you know, and, and the, and the skills that you need to do every part of the process. They, you know, they can go between uh, materials, I think pretty easily. Yeah. The, the, like, I am not a very good welder, but the only way I could like wrap my head around welding was to think about it like a sewing machine, totally. like the heat going like down into the material and then yeah. like, bringing the thread back through it to like 
marry the two pieces together. Yeah. I also think there's a similarity to to the patience that you need for both of those tasks. Like I agree that welding is, is a lot of, or reminds me of the way a sewing machine works, but even with hand stitching, like I feel like the delicacy that you need um, and, and the way you kind of need to be able to feel the material is, is very similar, you know, because, and I'm not a very good welder either. I'm just now learning. Um, but, you know, watching some of, some of the people here weld, you can really see like, depending on the piece, you have to decide, you kind of have to know what the pieces that you're working on and obviously the thickness of it and how hot it needs to be. And yeah, what area you're, yeah, yeah. So many things, you know, and yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to think about it. Yeah, I always thought about mold making when I was doing that, like baking, because yeah, it's like if you mess up the recipe, you can't just like throw a bunch of sugar or a bunch of fat in there or take out all the yeah. flour or like you you, you got to have the right ratio or the cake is going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. Or will fall apart or all the, <laughs> yeah, all the varieties of catastrophe that can happen. But I also feel like in, it's interesting because in every level of fabrication, I think that having a an artistic sensibility and whether that's craft or um, I don't know, whatever the art school mentality that you have really helps you to be a successful fabricator, you know, be that like you have the skill, but also that you have the, the ability to kind of connect with the work and think of it in an impassioned way. You know, I think it's, I guess I don't really know what I'm saying, but something <laughs> okay. like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a curiosity and like sensitivity to materials. I think that once you, you can have like a natural, um, naturally attracted to it, but also once you've kind of learned one material, it's really easy to translate it, that attention to other. Yeah. Areas. Yeah. It's also really interesting because um, every department, the the way that you have to, address the material is totally different, right? Like there's the rigidity to the metal, whereas with wax, you it's, it's super temperamental and you have to kind of have a bit more of a, like a softer touch with it. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to see how personality wise, but also like craftsmanship wise, how it changes um, and how you need to use a different set of skill sets all within the same you know process of making a sculpture, but all varying levels yeah. of, you know, tactile skill, I guess. Is there like a project that you uh, worked on, <clears throat> excuse me, in the wax room that was like particularly difficult to translate into wax or to reassemble the wax piece mm. in a reflection of the um, original object? Uh, there's so many. I mean, the, <laughs> the cool thing is, is that every piece affords us a different challenge. You know, it, since we're not making the same thing over and over again, that is like the most motivating part. And I think what keeps it exciting, but it also is what makes it so challenging because, you know, we'll get a piece like say a Frank Benson, which is um, rendered in a 3d program on the computer um, and then 3d printed and then molded and then made into wax. But, but during that whole process, right, there's no, there's no hand in it. So it, yeah. it, it comes out, it needs to come out as perfect as a 3d print can, can produce. Right. And we're 
we're using our hands and tools and heat and wax. None of those things, uh, none of which move in a, in a way that can come across as digital. So, you know, we'll master that. And that takes a while to, to get to the point of being able to kind of cheat and make it look. Yeah. Um, it's not cheating. It's highly skilled. Yeah. Right. But you get used to that. Right. And then, and then something comes around that, that is just like, maybe something that an artist created and then scaled up. That's always something that's really difficult because, you know, you can kind of understand what tool an artist used in a work and mimic that in wax, especially if it's coming from clay. But, but if an artist has taken something that they've created with their hands and then scaled it up to a larger size, you then run into having to think about how do I scale up the tool that they used so I, I would say that's that's a particular challenge. Um, but yeah, everything everything is a challenge and it and it changes <laughs> it changes, you know, week to week. And I, I think it's really cool because, you know, you also watch everyone grow and kind of learn how to do so many different things, which yeah. is exciting for us working. Do you ever make a tool specifically to work on like custom make a tool specifically to work on a piece of wax? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think in every department, there are times where people are making tools. And those are some of my favorite objects in the foundry, too, because, you know, they're highly specified and usually made with love because somebody needs something, you know, that (laughs) that's really going to be their right hand for a project. But yeah, we we sometimes make small resin tools um, with like a pattern because there are things like fabric, recreating fabric texture, which is you know, a perfect repetition of a line or a, um, a thread. Uh, and those can really help, but, uh, yeah, there's also times when you make a tool and it completely fails. So then you have to kind of come up with a a new idea or recreate it using your own artistic license. Um, but yeah, we're always trying to make tools and some are more successful than others. (laughs) Um. With the wax, cause it is so heat kind of sensitive mm-hmm. do you do you have to like climate control the room you guys are working in because you're yeah. next to a giant foundry <laughs> yeah well so the first year well for the first few years when I was here we didn't have a separate room for wax and yeah. uh every summer we'd run into the same issue which like you know you get wax over 80 degrees and it starts to slump um the larger the object obviously the more likely it is to kind of fall apart. So yeah, uh, now thankfully uh, the business is doing well enough that we're able to build a climate control room and it, and it's changed, you know, it's changed everything and we're really fortunate to, to have it and to have the space because yeah, you know, you're working, you're constantly working against the inherent qualities of the uh, material itself, you know, like yeah. wax moves and you know you think about a candle even sitting in your house if you have a tall candle by the window you know leave it out there yeah and it'll, <laughs> it'll slump away so uh we have to have a controlled environment for that and um and the same goes for you know we have to have burners on at all times and so uh there has to be an air intake and outtake in the room to to make sure that the air stays fresh as well yeah is that and that's for heating metal tools to yeah detailed work on the wax yeah and usually when you're reworking or trying to put textures back in you want to use as little heat as possible because you know everyone's first inclination is to put their hot tool right on the wax and uh it's very unforgiving (laughs) so uh predominantly for the gating system where you're really trying to create um 
a structure, that's when you use the most heat because you really want to make sure it's, it's kind of like welding with wax. You want to make sure that both, both components are melted before they adhere to one another so that you get a true bond. Yeah. Do you guys always use the same product of wax or do you change for different, different things? Uh, yeah, we use a couple of different varieties um, for the patterns and for the sculptures themselves. We use like a very high quality um, casting wax, which, you know, can get the detail of a fingerprint and um, has a pretty uh, high melting point so that, you know, you're not just melting through with any touch. And then for the gating wax, we use like a slightly different um, wax that's poured into strips uh, or into long sticks that we use to then create these maze structures. Uh, and then we have, you know, sticky wax, which is wax that's a little bit like hot glue that we oh. use to help glue things back together. And then there's soft wax, which you can use to um, fill little air bubbles or something that's in the surface. So yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole variety of waxes. And I think every foundry kind of has their favorites and I think yeah. we do as well. You know, we've, we've tried quite a few different types and I think we're, we're down to like maybe six different types. Now. <laughs> Just six. Yeah. So that's fine. <laughs> and you do, uh, you work in the wax room, but you also do a little bit of like artist liaison project managing. Yeah. Artists, right. Is there, uh, do you have artists? I mean, I, I never want to play favorites. Do you have right. artists you really like to work with? Like how is that to kind of talk artists through the process and to be really hands-on in the wax room too? Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I'm really fortunate because I came at a time when, you know, they were only working with a few artists, some that followed them from Polish Talics and, um, I came in at a moment when Kiki Smith started coming into the foundry. And at that point there were, you know, seven of us here. And I think I was the only girl and um, Andrew was kind enough to think, you know, maybe that would be a good match for her. And so I was kind of the first person she worked with when she came. Um, and she works, she's probably our most hands-on artist. She's here you know, 10 times more than any other person we work with. And um, the benefit of that is that she gets to really manipulate the um, material throughout the whole, the whole process. Um, so whereas someone usually comes in, drops off a of work, says, you know, turn this into bronze. She does that, but then she'll also come in and fuss with it in wax and add to it and then come at the end of the process and, yeah. you know, patch things together. So um I work really closely with her and uh, I really appreciate that because, you know, even just being here and working with these artists who I studied in school, like it's really humanizing and it's really cool because you get to see them at, at this moment. That's kind of an intimate moment where they're, you know, letting go of, of something. Whereas, you know, artists are usually really involved in their entire process and, having to and being able to let go is a uh, like an interesting moment to watch an artist that I've kind of gotten closer with uh in the past few years as well is Huma Baba and you know she came in and worked with us for some of the pieces that she put on the roof of the Met a few wow. years ago two of these like large scale um one of them was like a totem like statue um and the other one was a praying figure um, but she's, she's now coming in all the time and being able to watch her work evolve and kind of, you know, see her kind of coming into her own as far as 
bronze sculpture goes is is really exciting. But I think lately I've been most excited about um, Shabalala self. Uh, she's like my age, um, making bronze sculptures. But I think the thing that's most exciting about her and and having her come in, and I haven't really worked closely with her, but she, I feel like she is utilizing what Andrew and Vinny offer here um, in what I would think is like the most inclusive way. She is using us to make plaster works for her. She is using us to fabricate these, you know, large mirrored structures. She's casting uh-huh. bronzes. She's so she's kind of playing with all of the materials that that we are able to offer her. And mm-hmm. I I just think that that's been really exciting to see cuz you know, a lot of the the more traditional pieces that we make here are, you know, bronze bronze additioned work. Yeah, like this is an object, turn it into bronze exactly as it looks when I hand it to you. I will be back in. Yeah, I'll see you. Three months to pick it up. Exactly. But so, yeah, it's been exciting to kind of see her explore. And, you know, it makes sense with her work as well, because I feel like she's she's pretty playful with her pieces. But it's also just been cool to watch that evolution kind of happen here. I feel like in a past conversation, you mentioned... um, this kind of access to artists and how amazing it is to see them in the middle of their creative process. And you talked about it being uh, like a MFA program inside the foundry. Yeah. <laughs> could, could you talk about that and like the conversations you're having with people and, and how that relates to what you thought it'd be like, like graduating into the world with a BFA? Um, yeah. I, I, I think some of that is, um, like a little self-delusion as well to say like, okay, well, I didn't choose an MFA, right? Like I chose to go straight into the uh, quote unquote real art world. Um, but I think, I think some, I don't know, maybe self-delusion isn't the right word. I just think that, that it is such a special moment where, you know, my, most of my coworkers got their BFAs. Um, yeah. Most, if not all, at least, came in with some interest or background in art, fine art. And most, if not all, have like studied everyone that we work with and have an interest in having conversations about work. You know, like sometimes I think we have to step back and just kind of do the labor and disconnect. But there are times when we all get in really deep conversations and we we can have critiques about the work that we're that we're producing as well as work that we want to make in response to being around it all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, Andrew and Vinny have done uh, a really nice thing by uh, allowing us, well, we have a four day work week. We work Monday through Thursday, uh, 10 hour days so that we get our full time in by Thursday. And Friday is kind of open for people who want to work overtime as well as if you want to come in and, and, you know, play around and make your own work. And that's amazing. Yeah. It's really great because they've basically given us the opportunity to have access to casting, which for most of us, you know, is, is totally unattainable, (laughs) unattainable. Yeah. And unaffordable, you know? And so being able to, to do that, I think has been really motivating for a lot of us. And even though we don't always use, um, you know, use that 
to our advantage, I think that it, it does create really interesting conversations and dialogues between, you know, those of us here and, and it may, and it motivates people to, to keep making work in a way that, you know, my professors always said at this point, what, 10% of us should still be making work. (laughs) Yes. Stubbornness. Talent talent is one thing, but stubbornness to keep doing it is like a, a real thing that keeps artists like around and in the yeah. conversation, if you're just stubborn enough to keep doing it, yeah, you're, you're winning in some way. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and it feels like not, not utilizing this, um, time and this space. Uh, I just feel too much guilt if I, if yeah. I were to let that opportunity pass. So, yeah. I mean, I, I also think there's something, the conversations about the work when you're fabricating the work for someone else, like I don't want to, our listeners to think that uh, you use the word critique. It's not the conversations I've had. It's not like you're critiquing the work. Like I don't like this or this is bad. It's, it's more like a conceptual conversation about what the artist is trying to do. Are they being successful? Because I think from my experience, an essential part of fabrication is not judging whether the work is good or not. Yeah. It's, it's just a like conversation about the success of it, the, the interest around it, the kind of offshoots of conversation that come out of it. When you're sitting there for eight hours, like fixing some tiny little thing, you get pretty deep in that conversation. Definitely. Well, and I think I think the really cool part for us has been because we're such a small foundry, um, we work more closely with the artists and therefore have like almost um, – more invested in their work because of that. You know, we, we see them and we see their works come through. And I think that, that, yeah, you're right. We're, we're not usually critiquing it by saying like, Oh, it's bad. Or I wish they would have done this differently. It's usually a conversation around, you know, what, what it means in the, in the greater context, right? Like, because these, these works are being made. It's, it's not as though, you know, it's a school project. Um, Someone has thought them out and someone has, uh, you know, figured out how to make it the way that they want. You know, it brings up important conversations because I think seeing people at this moment in their career motivates and, and asks us to have more conversations about, what that means and what the art that's going through and being produced for the art world is about and is saying about what's going on. I think that's usually the greater conversation is um, what the work is saying about what's happening in the world right now. One uh, conversation I've had a lot about that kind of behind the scenes um, perspective is a lot of other pockets of the art world, say conservation uh, would love to know <laughs> there's like decisions that are made. Um, what, sure. when, when fabrication is happening, the conservators 50 years, a hundred years down the line, wish they knew that kind of thing. Is there stuff that happens in the foundry where you're like, this is a moment that, that, um, like, do you guys keep records about the mix of metal that goes into a piece? Are there like notes that stay with the artwork? Like, how do you, do you track that stuff? have you seen stuff happen that you're like, Oh gosh, it's going to come up later. (laughs) Totally. And with that, I will say I, one thing I, I notice um, is that, 
there's never too much organization that can happen. Um, and I say that because, you know, working in particular with editions, you know, a lot of times they'll, an artist will order the first edition, will problem solve, will figure out how to get that out the door. The piece goes out into the world. And then two years later, they want the rest of the editions. And at that point, I mean, it could also be two months later. Honestly, the, <laughs> I don't know if it's just like I'm getting older or what, but I, it's so easy to forget everything that's gone on. Um, even though the process is the same every time, you know, and there are just tips and tricks and issues that come up between every single piece. Um, so yeah, we organize as much as possible. We try to take enough notes, but somehow there are always things that, that manage to get lost between editions. And so a lot of the times you, you know, at your own fault, you're learning the lessons twice. Um, so I think, you know, we're always working to make sure that we're organized in that sense, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's really difficult to, to ensure that you understand why things fail so that they don't fail again, or, you know, how to, how to do something the best and most efficient way. Um, and I think, I think it will always happen, but I think, also, the longer that the business is around and the, the longer people are able to work here, um, the more skilled our entire production becomes. And um, we have less of a tendency to, to deal with those issues. Yeah. Yeah. So. Do you guys um, do you store molds like for an addition? Do you, do you give the molds sure to the artists? Do. do you destroy them? Like what, what do you do with the molds? Um, well, typically... Uh, the structure is that we keep the molds until the edition is finished. Um, but um, a lot of times, especially with artists who maybe, you know, aren't having a show or just want something made or something that's going to be a big public work that doesn't sell, you know, we'll make the first edition and then future editions are kind of implied, but not necessarily followed through on. So <laughs> it's always an issue because molds are usually the most cumbersome byproduct of the entire process and they're intrinsically larger than the piece they are and they're heavy and they're unwieldy and so uh it's a lot of back and forth but for the most part we keep them for a specified amount of time uh you know typically it should be six months after the the work is complete um but yeah it's usually a a a lot more of a back and forth because we're working with artists and (laughs) you know, that has its own. And, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the artists don't really have capacity to store those things. So, you know, uh, especially if they're new to the process, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize, uh, how cumbersome that can be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. But we're quickly running out of space. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) the, the, you know, the bigger the business gets, the less capacity we have to hold on to things for, Long period yeah. of time. So. How big? How big are you now? I know you said when you started there was only maybe six employees, but how many do you guys have now? I think now we're up to twenty. So wow, we've doubled in size, and you know it's cool to have been here early on because it's also amazing to see what has been done. You know, now if you look out on the floor, 
there is no untouched space uh, in the shop <laughs> and slowly things have been upgraded and um, yeah. And the staff has grown. We're up to half women in the foundry, which is cool because when I started, I was the only uh, girl on the floor and that's exciting to see. But um, yeah, it's uh, I think as big as it can be in the space provided. So, um, which I think is what they intended, you know, and I think what the artists really respond to when they come in, you know, because they see familiar faces and um, yeah, I think it feels more intimate that way. Yeah. You can build more of a relationship with staff if, if you see the same person every time. Yeah. And we're, we're all very close and, I feel very fortunate because, you know, the people that I work with, I love working with them. I, we have great conversation. We, uh, we hang out outside of work and we still are able to come in and put our heads down and get things done. Um, yeah. For each other as, as much as for Andrew and Vinny, because they've kind of fostered this community. So, yeah. Did I see that you guys did like a collaborative was that with people from the um, Foundry Collaborative art piece that of your own work? Um, oh, no. So, well, we did two. My friends and I, um, I work collaboratively with two of my best friends. Um, we have a collective called Inarticula Incorporated. And, um, yeah, we, we've been trying to have shows um, just in the area. We all went to art school. We all work, you know, in the art world. And um, we tried we we've often felt you know unenthused by the art world and white wall galleries and so we've been trying to kind of make our own idea of what we want to do with art in the um in in the world and so we started to have these pop-up shows in um varying places around town uh but most recently we had a studio we have a studio um around the corner from the shop and we uh were able to ask our landlord if she would let us have a show in this big vacant space in the bottom of her building cool which was just full of junk um because you know here included all of our friends up here are all artists in their own rights and they're all making work and you know, a lot of them don't have access to, to showing that work. So we kind of wanted to make it into a DIY space. Um, yeah. It seems like Kingston has gotten kind of influx of artists just, just purely based on the fabrication business kind of moving upstate over the last five or six years. Definitely. Yeah. And, and the amount of artists who are up here working, you know, who are showing in the city, you know, they, they all have assistants and those assistants all went to art school, you know, and, and are practicing on their own as well. So yeah. And, and that's kind of why we wanted to do it. Um, you mentioned that part of that show is in response to COVID. And so our listeners know we're like in month uh, eight, uh, eight of the pandemic. Month or year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And time has no relevance or meaning to me anymore, uh, which is one of the reasons we're doing this interview um, online. But I was wondering, has COVID, um, changed how you guys are working in the shop like yeah it's it's been it's been a little bit of everything I think you know early on we did shut down in March so we closed completely in March um 
for I think three months honestly the time then was a blur right because not being here um but when we closed we were super busy so up until that moment we I don't think we've ever not been busy but but we were very busy um until we closed the doors and when we opened back back up I think it was you know everyone was a little bit nervous Andrew and Vinny were a little bit unsure of of how it would go but kind of right off the bat it went right back into being totally insane again. Um, Luckily we were able to bring everyone back. Um, We have enough space in the shop that everyone can spread out. um, And we were able to do things, you know, with new restrictions, nobody hanging out in the break room. Um, But yeah, everyone was able to come back full time. Um, And as far as work goes, I feel like we could have people working overtime. Uh, but you know, I mean, now we're in a, in a new state of unknown where, you know, if we shut down again, that's also a possibility, but, yeah. but otherwise it seems as though it's business as usual, the art world. I, I don't know if it's fear yeah. of, of another shutdown or, you know, an unknown, but it seems like shows are happening. People are planning shows. People are buying art. It's like, the wheels are still turning. Which is a little scary, right? To to think that, that the art world is seemingly so untouched that they're able to do that. But I but I yeah. also just think it it's you know, art art has always happened and you know will always prevail. Yeah. You know, Vinny and Andrew talk about what it was like during nine eleven and even during the housing market crash, you know, like this has actually been a a better outcome you know in comparison but but that either way you know people still come back around to to needing art and I I think it just goes to show that like we always will need art yeah and I think some of these big shows especially things that require a bronze um they're planned so far in advance that people are making work for 2023 right now yeah yeah so they're like, that date's not changing. Yeah, right. So. Which is like, on one hand, it's great because you you get to kind of see the scope of what's going to happen. It's also a little scary because we live that much further in the in the future. You know, when you're trying yeah. to be as present as possible, you're constantly living, you know, six months, a year in the future by by planning all this out. But yeah, it seems, it seems as though as everyone's working. I mean, I think the other thing too is, um, you know, I talked to Huma recently and she said, what she did during the pandemic was work, right? So all these yeah. artists have had all of this time now too to just make work. And yeah, so a I, lot of a lot yeah. of sketches coming in. Yeah, you. exactly. So I think people have been really productive and I mean I think that's a good sign for for business. Yeah, and I think when I uh I haven't worked with artists for some time having done some kind of side things outside of fabrication like this podcast, but um, yeah. I always noticed that by the time an artist could afford to hire me, to, to use me to help them make their work, they were often, um, the demand on their work was so high, they often didn't have very much time to really think pieces out. It was like um, they were kind of stuck in a production. That, mm-hmm. It's an unkind term, but to say that that production required objects to be on brand for them. But it seems like... Um, even though there's obviously terrible issues with the pandemic, just a like pause in general in the kind of high production value 
art world is not necessarily a bad thing. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And also I think, you know, even though the art world seems to, to be doing just fine and all of these artists are still selling, I do think it, it's been a really eye-opening year. And I, and I'm, I'm making that judgment, not on like anything that's been coming into the shop or anything that, that I, I see, but I, I just think the overall feeling, um, I mean, and even pre pandemic, just like everything that's going on politically and, you know, I don't want to like go too far into that, but I just, I do think like things, there are responses happening and, and, you know, there, I do think the art world took a breath, you know, and, and had to kind of take a moment. And yeah, and good. I think there's a whole set of art workers, art handlers, like you were saying, crate builders and young artists who had just transitioned into not having to have a day job. You know, they were just starting to that really got decimated by the pandemic. Totally. And I feel like that, even if the very established art world isn't acknowledging right now, it will in a year or two. Definitely. When you notice there's like a whole chunk missing. (laughs) Yeah. People just got taken out of New York basically. Yeah. Well, and, and I also think it's a really, it's a really interesting moment for art laborers right now. And, you know, the, the foundry is a a perfect place to kind of see that happen, which is, you know, we're lucky to be back at work now, but you know, there are plenty of people, like you said, that, that won't be going back to work. And I, and I think that, I hope that, I think it's a little soon to, to say, but I, I hope that the art world comes around to, to realizing who is running the, you know, who's kind of running the ship as far as like how the work is, is getting out into the world. And, you know, that obviously it helps to have social media and it helps to have platforms like art handler mag. Right. And, and, and even, you know, independent publications and this podcast that are kind of shining a light on it. So I have one last question for you. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite tool? (laughs) Right. And I knew you were going to ask this and I didn't want to sound cheesy. So I was just going to say, I have a a broken dental tool that I, um, really in love with that broke a long time ago. And, and I prefer it that way. And, um, it's called a Chad. Um, Uh I named it myself and now everyone in the wax room has one, but I really think, (laughs) I really think my most important tool is empathy and I say that as, as a woman kind of trying to figure out her own place in the foundry as well as in the art world. I think working with artists and working with people and employees and, and managing people, I think that it really helps to care about them and to care about what's going on. A huge thank you to Chelsea for taking the time to talk today. Listeners can learn more about workshop art fabrication at workartfab.com and see some images of foundry projects and Chelsea's own artworks at our Instagram at craftsmanship underscore podcast. As always, please subscribe to our program on your podcast provider of choice and a final credit 
to the Bryce Arislabaglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. Thank you.